0: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sir, I'm detecting a subspace message. I'll put it on speakers. Subspace, dare to wander.
1: you know, we celebrated our anniversary this week. We did? No, not, not we, oh. <laughs> not you and me, uh, Lily and me, my wife. Oh yeah, that's right. And I celebrated our anniversary. That's four years now, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you were, would have been welcome to m- many of the uh, celebratory functions oh. in which we engaged, uh, such as Disneyland. I mean, I, I can hardly traverse great moments with Mr. Lincoln without thinking of you. <laughs> That's right. Your lips met mine, and that first excited... We went to Tam O'Shanter later in the week for, oh, a, yeah. for a lovely dinner where where we had the rehearsal dinner. Yes, uh, uh, all it's those still years up for their Prime rib, prime rib quality. They're still up on their prime rib quality. <laughs> uh, anyway, we love the Tam. The Tam's a yeah, Tam's a lovely place. It's a historic. And, well, historic. If for no other reason than Walt Disney ate lunch there every day, so it all leads back to <laughs> to Uncle Walt, doesn't it? Sure does. You know, a hundred years ago, come October sixteenth uh, was when Walt Disney founded his first company in that little print shop, what is now oh. a print shop just down the street here in yeah. Los Feliz Village. Yeah, I know. I've been to that. I think I've taken friends there to show them
0: where the Disney mega empire started.
1: I was thinking uh, maybe, you know, on that day, i do a little uh, TikTok video from there. Oh, I, don't know. I don't know. How fun? I'd, I mean, then I'd have to get TikTok. There's a one thing left to do before my story's through. I've got to take you for my wife, So the story of my life can start and end. Can start and end, can start and end with you. Hey, so we also went to uh, Olandar on the actual uh, wedding anniversary to go see Lee. I had not uh, visited Lee McCloskey since before the pandemic. Oh, cool. And uh, that felt like a really important little ritual to go back and check in with them. Because four years, Dean, you know, the the gift for a uh, four-year uh, uh, wedding anniversary are tin. flowers or oh. fruit because the marriage is considered to be in full bloom uh. at, at that point. I actually, it it sounds like a joke and, and maybe certainly it, it, it is in some levels, but... After the four years that they were, uh, and some of the things that went on—losing my eyesight, my parents dying, the pandemic, uh, so much more—four uh, years is the average amount of time it takes for a student to graduate. <laughs> and uh, and I sort of do feel like we've graduated into uh-huh. a new into a new uh, phase of the uh, of the marriage. We've been together, as you know, sixteen years. Right. Well, and I. Because that's exactly how long you and I have been doing this show.
0: <laughs> that's how you measure it.
1: Well, it's that's... it's hard to forget either of them. Really, 2007 <laughs> was a banner year there, and just like uh, this show, uh, Lil and my relationship just drives itself now because it's, <laughs> it's 16. <laughs> really, what I thought of apropos of this show and how. We, uh, we barely touched on uh, uh, any celebrity deaths last week, and we have so many right. august personages. I did play a little clip from uh, Austin Powers that included Burt Backrack on last week's show. But Burt Backrack actually played a not insignificant role in Lily and My Wedding. That's right. Because two he- songs, two early songs written by Burt Backrack feature prominently on the playlist at the reception. One was very much for your benefit. It was The Blob. The Blob, right? The weirdest uh, horror movie theme theme song song one could ever hope to hear. Uh, And the other was uh, his first hit that he wrote. Uh, It was recorded by Marty Robbins. It was the story of my life. And uh, it's... uh, it's it's a very uh, romantic song. nah Um. It's you. it's it's about wanting the story of your life to begin and end with uh, this person. Beware of the blob! It creeps and leaps
0: and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch. Be careful of oh, the. Oh.
1: So anyway, so I just was uh, aware of Burt Bacharach all week, as it as it were, um, songwriting giant, right? Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, just the powerhouse. And 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 you think of just those two songs that we mentioned, early hits for him, of course, um, but so diverse. And uh, I always thought of Burt Bacharach lyrically, but. Just those two songs. Here's this kind of country ballad. And then here's this... I don't even know how you would describe the music in the Blob theme song. Uh,
0: yeah. what? Dun, 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 dun. It's kind of a um,
1: uh,
0: bossa nova, maybe a cha-cha.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? So musically, always oh, very interesting. And, and he would use sounds. Actually, now that I think even about b- both those songs, there's there is there there is musical instruments used almost as sound effects and then sound effects turned back into almost a musical through line. Why don't we take a few minutes to learn a little uh, about this songwriting giant whose hits included What the World Needs Now and I Say a Little Prayer. He died February 8th at his home in Los Angeles at the age of 94, uh, most Famous works that he produced was when he was one half of a songwriting team along with Hal David, who uh, died in in twenty twelve. Uh, Backrack was born nineteen twenty eight in Kansas City, Missouri. Wow, uh, was known as the king of easy listening, and <laughs> and I think that's why maybe I didn't give him his due for a long time because that does not in any way describe the range of this guy's ability and influence. Um, he certainly had an infallible ear for a hook. Every single song of his virtually that I put on over the last couple weeks, that song uh, threatened not to get out of my ear for (laughs) quite a while until I put a different song on. Right. Those are called earworms. Yes. And he uh, had earworms that became hit after hit after hit in the U.S., 73 songs that he wrote or co-wrote, landed in the top 40. Wow. that 73. That's uh, a lot. Did you know how he got uh, started, really launched onto the scene? His uh, early collaboration? No. Tell uh, me. It was with Marlena Dietrich. What? Yeah. He um, In the latter days of Dietrich's career, as she reinvented herself as a cabaret performer, Right. She hired Backrack in the mid-50s as her musical arranger. And oh. he went on tour with her for years, even as his songwriting career with Hal David was taking off. And, and she came to rely on him as an integral part of her act. So he really did perform with her. But you did allude to something that um, he, he, he could play piano. He was a good pianist. Uh, and he could carry a tune, but he never sang his hits he right. was a writer producer first and foremost
0: well and what great training it would be to go on the road exactly. with exactly that's fantastic
1: yeah i mean you learn all elements of show business doing something yeah. like that right um Backrack and david uh, found success in their writing uh first um prominently with the 1957 song the story of my life as i mentioned it became a number one country hit and it was followed shortly thereafter by magic moments by perry como
0: oh yes
1: which which reached the billboard top 10 and again you know you think perry como you sort of chuckle but that song again an irresistible hook to it Right, uh, they uh, David and him went on to craft a seemingly never-ending string of hits in the '60s. It's a decade that they hit their stride, and I would say a decade musically that, in some ways, is defined by them. We we know the Beatles, we know the British Invasion, but man, you go through this song catalog and you go, no, Burt Bacharach was a major, major architectural pillar of music of the 1960s. Um, they wrote for a wide variety of artists, Dusty Springfield, The Carpenters, Herb Alpert, and of course, uh, the greatest of their working relationships was the one they cultivated with Dionne Warwick that started ah. in the nineteen sixties. Wow. And, and this is such a cool story. Um Backrack discovered her when he was producing a session for the Drifters. Okay she was providing backup vocals and he knew he was hearing something special and he arranged for her to sing a demo of his and Hal David's Make It Easy on Yourself. But the recording session was a disaster. Oh. She was upset with the direction she was receiving and she left the studio in tears shouting, don't make me over, man. <laughs> Backrack and David were determined to work with her. And they were, they were so inspired by her outburst that the next song they presented to her to record was a song called Don't Make Me Over.
0: <laughs> Fantastic.
1: They had changed the meaning of the phrase as they wrote the song, turning it into a lover's plea. And it worked. Warwick recorded it. It was released as... A debut single, it was very, very popular. And of course, she would go on to record dozens upon dozens of that songwriting team's compositions, 38 of which would lead to chart hits. Wow. Uh, Including Anyone Who Had a Heart, I Say a Little Prayer, Do You Know the Way to San Jose. Regarding (laughs) Dionne Warwick's immense importance to his career, uh, Backrack called her our artist and our flagship. Wow. How about that?
0: And how about that? You have so much faith that the, somebody storms out, and you think, "Oh no, this is this isn't going good." This, we're gonna write a song just about this outburst, and it, yeah, we're this is. That's,
1: yeah, I mean, you don't take it personally. personally. You don't question yourself. You, yeah. You say, "Whoa, look at what we just learned about her. Look at how much she showed us." Yeah. Right. That we can work with. That has to be why he's able to write so many different songs and write for so many different people, because he's not locked down through the prism of ego in terms of who he is and what he should be doing. Right. And I don't
0: write those kind of songs, you know, whatever the case may be. So fascinating
1: Hal David and he had a big falling out after more than a quarter century of collaboration. Um, And it, I guess happened when they were scoring a movie lost horizon because, you know, they did score films. Uh, Again, we mentioned the blob, but uh, Burt Backrack would win three Oscars. And uh, together with Hal David, they, they created the award winning music for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, not just raindrops keep falling on my head. And they also co-created the Broadway musical "Promises, Promises."
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Um, but the but the movie "Lost Horizon" was a bit of a train wreck, and it uh, it soured their their friendship and their partnership. It ended acrimoniously, mm-hmm. um, but uh, of course they they left behind such a legacy. Um, and there was even many more hits in store for Backrack after he and David parted ways. Um, with his wife Carol Bayer Sager, he, he, he wrote Arthur's theme. Uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, he wrote uh, which won an Oscar, uh, Heartlight uh, for Neil Diamond based on E. T. Right? Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Th- the duet on My Own, uh, recorded by Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald, that was uh, that was ubiquitous there for a while in the uh, in the eighties. Uh, he's con- he considered uh, the Gershwin Prize, which he won, uh, the pinnacle of his career. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was given by the Library of Congress in 2011. Wow.
0: And I met him in Vegas, believe it or not. Uh, we were both attending uh, Tom Jones Live. And he had come specifically because Tom Jones had singled him out in the audience and uh, said, I'm going to sing uh, a bunch of hits that he wrote for me. And it was sort of an a evening of celebration of Burt Bacharach. And he was sitting in the same row as I was. So I was like, hey, cool. Uh, nice to meet you what I said that was the extent of our conversation celebrity deaths
1: and now your chill pack Hollywood hour with Dean Hagland and Phil Lairness. I guess I should say welcome to season three episode 55 of your chill pack Hollywood hour coming at you from the Los Angeles neighborhood of Los Feliz I am Phil Lairness, and coming at us from Birmingham Michigan it's the Motor City adjacent madman it's TV's Dean Hagland. hooray it's me uh, Dean I've seen a couple of movies that I wanted to talk to you about oh, good
0: because I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna see later this afternoon and you'll be shocked B- please tell me what are you gonna see <laughs> later this afternoon we already have tickets for 80 for Brady at, uh... oh my God oh
1: my <laughs> god I you know like I don't like slasher movies
0: <laughs> I don't and it's not a slasher movie well I, it, it's a long story. But at the Valentine's dinner, our waitress, who looked a lot like Amy Sedaris, uh, suggested that if we're locals at this new restaurant, we should come on Sunday when their burgers are served. Quite delicious, she said. Off the menu, she said. And say, hey, why don't you go see the movie Across the Street and come here afterwards? I heard 80 for Brady's hilarious. <laughs> so we, see, we agreed. So on the waiter's recommendation...
1: We we're going to go see it. Speaking of slasher films, <laughs> I finally watched Pearl. Oh. You know, I had I had, had it for quite a while, but I, I held off because uh, I wanted to savor X. Right. And, and I'm so glad I did. Oh, my goodness. Before going right into that, because it, it would have been a case of whiplash. Now, yeah. w- w- how close together did you watch those two films?
0: Uh, I'm going to say I gave it... Uh... Two weeks, a so week and a half, two weeks?
1: Yeah, I don't think that was enough. I, I agree, actually. Um, I don't... I, before before we... <laughs> we don't want to deal strictly in the negative. We um, <laughs> don't. Um, because, oh my goodness, no, this is an a, a, a impressive piece of work. And right. there's a lot to admire. I mean, simply the fact that they pulled off what they pulled off in the circumstances that they did. What a, what a spontaneous, wonderful honorable act of creativity we are locked down we are in uh, quarantine we're not able to leave the country because of the rules and the restrictions if we're here and we have the equipment and the crew why not make another movie right um and so uh i don't and i'm not damning it with faint praise <laughs> it, it is it's not just that they made something they did make a work that holds together it yeah. is a cohesive piece. It's just that the the shadows already cast yeah. by that first one are are so immense, and uh, and the, and the differences between the two films are startling. It's not just that tonally they're different; it's that that first film, set in the seventies, seemed to be a movie of the seventies. I'm yeah. not, I'm not saying that it entirely felt like it was made then, but it, it felt like it was of the times. Right. Yes. And X- this felt like a movie about the times it's set. Oh, commenting and- on it rather than coming from it. And part of that is stylistically, right? I mean, X is a, is a movie. And this feels like it's about movies.
0: Yes. Oh, I see what you're saying. That it's, uh, yes, to me it was more, um, I believe the term is self-reflexive.
1: Yes. Oh, my goodness. That's exactly the word because what I was wrestling with was how does X feel like a movie with a lot on its mind, but Pearl feels like the filmmakers had a lot on their mind, so they made a movie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, uh, for my feeling though, it is uh, X had that breeziness Yes, that, and uh, that happens when you go, Oh my, we don't have a lot of time. Let's just, uh, you know, blow this off. Right. As, as in, Hey man, uh, nobody, this is kind of a throwaway and often the throwaways are better than the thing you have focused so intently on and had made such strides. I also think the lead actress had a lot to do with it because I'm sure, uh, playing Pearl, she had to create a huge backstory for herself. And it sounds like they just sat down and bored out of their head because they locked down in quarantine, going, "Hey, what's your backstory?" And then that's inspiring them to go.
1: And her and her work is great. She is great in both films. She's mm. almost—it's almost an astonishing demonstration of her gifts in, yeah, right? in in the film, rather than again, a story coming from character. And I like that you said that X, there's a breeziness to it because this one is attempting to be breezy. That's what it's really, that's kind of, you know, where the the difference between the tone and the reality of what's going on uh it kind of makes the film interesting and sort of funny, but it's a pleasure that is, uh, limited, especially compared to the rich pleasures of the first one. But, you know, honestly, again, they didn't know they were going to make Pearl and how yeah. long did this director Ty West plan everything in X? I feel like it's one of those cases where you plan and you plan and you plan so that you're free to enjoy the spontaneous. Yes, exactly. And and then in Pearl, there was no time for planning. And so they came up with the style and the approach that they did. It's impressive that, again, the approach hangs together. But I would have appreciated, look, maybe you can't make a movie, that looks like it would have been had it been made in the nineteen teens, mm-hmm. but think of how they play with different aspect ratios in the first film in X. Yeah. Why not play with different color and textures and in, Tony, yes, and in, and in this one, to show the reality of her inner life versus her actual life, versus her fantasy life, and what happens to those fantasies when they get corrupted or get soured. There's so much that they could have explored in much the same way. But again, they didn't have time. They just realized they were going to make a movie with a couple of weeks to go.
0: Yeah, it's tough. Also, for me, uh, holy smokes, there's got to be another movie, because the husband comes home at the end of the movie from the First World War to discover her grisly secret, air quotes. Uh, I'm not spoiling this one this time. Air
1: quotes were her grisly secret?
0: <laughs> no, I'm putting the word
1: air, oh, grizzly secret oh, in see. air quotes. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, uh, and so there's got to be a third movie of that guy's arc between Pearl and X. And I don't know if that was intentional on the uh, writer's part or, or if it is a glaring omission now that they made this,
1: the, acts. I don't think they're interested. I just don't think they're interested. And I do really? agree with you. That's a, that's a doorway that is, because they're going to go to the third one and it's her, it's Maxine's story. So oh. we've, you know, in the eighties as a, as a big time porn star. And, and that is what's interesting is I think they always planned on that sequel so I think they were always interested in the 70s and then the 80s going, uh, you know, before the advent of VHS yeah. and then after it. I think he was always interested, Ty West, in exploring those settings. What's interesting is going back to Pearl's origin story. You're going back to World War One. Yes, uh, there are some interesting parallels to pandemics that are taking place i also love that it's set in an area that you and i have explored right near fredericksburg right yeah german communities and stuff but i um i was sort of struck by this movie is set in the 19 teens but it feels like it's more borrowing from and about the 1950s and yes. and that's not necessarily a weakness, but again, how much did we appreciate that X felt of the 70s? Right. And uh, I felt with Ty West's uh, Pearl that to a degree they were making movies about Douglas Cirque, the director of so many great <laughs> melodramas of the 1950s, those technicolor melodramas.
0: Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, very few people uh, try to emulate Cirque, I think, these days. Not flashy I, I, enough. I,
1: I, I want to, and I want to emulate one that I saw that I don't think gets discussed at all. And so, yes, I'm segueing out of Pearl. Oh, look at uh, what you see. Into a 1947, we'll call it a loosely defined film noir. It <laughs> it calls itself a noir. It It doesn't really achieve it. But, it, but you know it's in that direction. I just don't think stylistically they're depicting psychology in the way that we expect film noir to. But a black and white crime picture set in London, directed by Douglas Sirk oh. in 1947, before he's making those melodramas. Multiphasic transmissions overlapping. It's almost a gibberish. Subspace. Dare to wander. seal ball what george sanders and there is a comedy dream team right then did <laughs> wow. two people ever have better uh rapport with each other while delivering a Cerbic dialogue i don't know if i've seen it lucy plays a taxi dancer is that what those are called the women that would dance for a dime yeah uh,
0: the dance girls yeah taxi yeah dance.
1: Uh, There in London, an American who was working there as a taxi dancer, and uh, she gets mixed up in an investigation into uh, how a bunch of girls in London, single ladies, have gone missing. And Charles Coburn, the wonderful Charles Coburn, who uh, plays an inspector at Scotland Yard who, when Lucy comes in to offer up evidence about a friend of hers who's gone missing, realizes, wait a minute, if we deputize this gal, (laughs) she could not only be a real source of information as a taxi dancer, but she could start answering these ads in personal columns and meeting with the men who write them. Because what they believe is the, if, if the women are dead, the killer or the abductor, is uh, finding these women through personal ads. Wow. And uh, uh, George Sanders plays someone who wants to hire Lucy to his club and falls in love with her, and then who might or might not be the person they're looking for. Um, There's wonderful casting, Dean. George Zuko, the horror great, plays kind of her guardian angel, a a, a beat cop who goes undercover uh, to shadow her to keep her safe and none other than Karloff, Boris Karloff <laughs> shows up as one of the men she meets. Wow. Uh, What's this movie called? It's called Lured. It was originally, I think, called Personal Column or something and uh, it bombed. So they pulled it from release and re-released it three weeks later with the name Lured <laughs> and and it bombed. Um, but the whole idea, Dean, of a woman being recruited to uh, go on these quote unquote dates, these appointments, because personal column, it wasn't all dates. It would be like, Hey, I'm looking for a model or, Hey, would you like, are you looking for an interesting business opportunity? Are you a single lady looking for a business opportunity, you know, and it could like dancing or something like that. But, um, uh, but I thought, Oh my goodness, what a fascinating kind of structure to follow for a mystery. Yeah. And especially if the mystery that she's assigned to be investigating ends up kind of taking care of itself and that the film becomes this sort of anthology or it could be a series. (laughs) Right. And maybe the, the mystery, the overarching mystery gets solved through a season, but each week is about Uh, the story of the people she meets through answering that ad. Wow. That's
0: a f- are you pitching that uh, to someone other than me right now? No well,
1: no I'm I'm wrestling with this because I also I won't go off off air I'll tell you a little bit about a a, a plot twist uh that <laughs> I ha- that I have based on it. It's not a spoiler of the movie but right. it's but it's an idea that I have based on something in the movie. So Fantastic. Um, anyway, how fascinating. Like isn't that fun to see Lucy before she's the most famous woman on the planet and she's so good in this uh, you know this this mystery noir, and like I said, the the writers give uh her and George Sanders some wonderful dialogue to get to play with. Their their romantic, um, not romantic scenes, but their they're kind of they're parrying, and the building of the romance is so delightful. Ah, uh, well, I'm dying to see this thing. Yeah, it's it's I... really it's really a pleasure, and uh, even though it's black and white and noirish. Uh, Douglas Sirk, still very, very stylish, just not the style you have come to expect from him. Right. Okay. Um, I'm sold. I saw another uh, uh, exercise in style. Quite frankly, this is all that this movie was, and delightfully so. Uh, uh, Speaking of noir, sort of a neo-noir, it begins as a noir, literally begins in this most solarized black and white, almost a wasteland of Tokyo, uh, from Seijun Suzuki, Tokyo Drifter, a 1966 Yakuza film. Oh, cool. And uh, it, it's about a, uh, a Yakuza enforcer who has given up the fight. He will no longer fight. He's going straight because his godfather is going straight. <laughs> and to test him, all the, the, the badasses from the different families kind of force him to come to a meeting in a train yard where they all beat him to a pulp to see if he'll fight back. And while he's kind of laying between two train cars, he sees on the ground a child's gun, a toy Hmm. gun in bright red in this black and white sequence. And we zoom into the credits. And from then on, we are in this dazzling technicolor world. And uh, it's all about the colors and the costumes and the set design and the jazz music and the ridiculous... Uh, riffs on action tropes and pastiches. Does the plot make sense? No. Does it matter? No, because if it did make sense, you'd just be aware of how stupid it is and and lame it is. Uh, It's just really, it's 82 minutes of one really stylish set piece after another. Tokyo Drifter and like any good Noirish hero, the Tokyo Drifter, has a theme song that is first sung by a woman who will become a main character in it, a nightclub singer, but it keeps being reinvented throughout the film in the form of different voices, including at one point he sings it himself about himself. <laughs> what? And then as he's lying, what you think is dying, you find out he's okay because he starts whistling his own theme song. <laughs> Uh, Tokyo <laughs> Drifter from Seijun Suzuki. It's part of the Criterion Collection. I saw at the American Cinematheque. What uh, a what a joy! What a delight! This sounds fantastic. It, it's that time of uh, in the late sixties, Dean, where so many different genres. Yeah. Um, there's kind of this sort of wild, tongue-in-cheek burst of creativity approach yeah. to so many genres that were wildly different yakuza dramas of japan m- m- musicals in france think young girls of rochefort yeah. uh, uh the batman on television here right. and yeah. it makes you wonder how all these years later are we back to taking all these genres so darn seriously
0: well this is the thing right you know, there was a stage of, of revolution social revolution anti-disestablishmentarianism as you remember in film school and uh I, I think
1: that that was easy, oh my God. Particularly with, with that with that you've already hit self-reflexivity. If you <laughs> say repressive desublimation at any other point in this show, you <laughs> will have hit my film school bingo card. but please continue.
0: <laughs> okay I'll, I'll try I'll try squeezing it in. Um, the uh, uh, the previous films of the 50s, think of those Technicolor musicals how easy? No, well, wow. easy in retrospect, uh, to pick up a camera and uh, have a revolution, revolt, push back against that uh, stayed, uh, 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 framed, tight control of your actors, scenes, dialogue, and just let it explode and go crazy and edit however you want it. I mean, think of Easy Rider. Have you seen Easy Rider? Have you rewatched it? Everybody remembers the motorcycles, but how about that weird acid trip in the cemetery?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
0: That's beyond disturbing. But cut, I don't even think they bothered to try and build a narrative out of it. It was just cut by an editor who was also on
1: acid. I was thinking about this going into the screening uh, about how many movies in the 60s I love when it wasn't, let's be honest, well, this is what I was thinking, a great mo- a decade for cinema. And right. then and then I realized, well, no, that's, it just wasn't a great decade for cinema in America. Um, but internationally, uh, there's so much great work being done. Cinema was truly global that decade. Oh, that's true. A- and the influences were of, of one area were being felt in another area. And, and we're being, you know, it was almost like you make this movie in this country and I respond to it with this movie in this country. And uh, it, it is actually exciting. And it leads to this, this explosion of just almost sheer creativity by the yeah. end of the decade. And you're right, Easy Rider is an American movie that belongs in that conversation. I would say so to The Graduate and yeah. and, and a Bonnie and Clyde, maybe. Um, but uh, Altman's MASH, um, you know, yeah. just these bursts of creativity and with with an irreverence and maybe even, as you're saying, an, an anti-establishment bent.
0: Yeah, and a new way of, of expressing itself. I also think there are two things, right? The the uh, invention of the smaller camera the uh, handheld Aeroflex, i think it was came out around the 60s so suddenly uh you can have a lot of film stock uh perched on your shoulder running around you didn't need the larger 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter uh things that you couldn't that had to be on tripods and dollies and stuff like that so you had this new freedom with the technology and the other thing it was sort of the beginning of all these film festivals around the world where they started. And now you got to meet international filmmakers. You got to travel, show your stuff. And uh, it, it was that crossbreeding of international artists coming together and inspiring each other and, and sort of taking that back to their home countries.
1: Here we are. We're spending so much time talking about the 60s on mm-hmm. a show where uh, Bert, we remember Burt Backrack And, of course, where we have to remember Raquel Welch celebrity deaths she was dare i say iconic yes um gained fame in in such movies as fantastic voyage and 1 million yes. years bc uh, she died after a brief illness at 82 um and it it was kind of shocking it sort it yeah. really did just come out of nowhere uh, her career spanned more than 50 years, 30 films, scores of television series and appearances, including uh, more than a dozen visits to Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. All right. right. Um, she was born Joe Raquel Tejada on September 5th, 1940 in Chicago. Oh. Her family m- moved to San Diego when she was a toddler. She attended San Diego State on a theater arts scholarship and got her start as a local television weathercaster. <laughs> wow before landing guest shots on such classic TV series as McHale's Navy, Bewitched, The Virginian, and others. Her breakout role came as Cora... In the uh, 1966 sci fi pick Fantastic Voyage. Oh, I love that movie. Which, of course, starred Stephen Boyd, Edmund O'Brien, Donald Pleasence, Arthur Kennedy. It followed the adventures of a group of people who are miniaturized along <laughs> with a, a submarine and injected into the bloodstream of a nearly assassinated scientist in an <laughs> effort to save his life, but they only have an hour before they will return to real size. There's a couple other possibilities. But there's a case that could be made that, look, this is her first movie, this launches her, and this might actually be the best movie that she ever did.
0: Well, that's the one I keep rewatching, and that's the one I see her all the
1: time, and and that's how, in my mind, I know her. Uh, It won Oscars for its visual effects, for art direction, set decoration. It it certainly became a cult classic. It was a box office hit at the time. Um, She then went to star as a cave woman in the 1966 British film One Million Years B.C., another absolute cult classic. It, uh, it became a television staple, that movie, when I, when I was growing up. She then goes on to star, and here's another great movie, but, um, you know, it's such a supporting, almost cameo turn, uh, but with Dudley Moore and Peter Cook in the London set uh, comedy Bedazzled. yeah, which I did just watch again. That's pretty funny. Um, but it is the, the Dudley and Peter cook show. And indeed it was an attempt to, I think it started as sketches that were planned for their show quite honestly. And then evolved into a movie. Um, I went down a Raquel Welch rabbit hole years ago where I decided to watch not that long ago, just a handful of years ago. I think when we were gearing up to do our top 10 favorite Westerns of all time, because she did several Westerns. She did Bandolero with James Stewart and Dean Martin in 1968. Um, Her next major film after that was Myra Breckenridge. She played the title role starring with Mae West and John Huston based on the Gore Vidal novel. Uh, about, uh, which I think was the first that had a main character that underwent a sex change operation Oh, and, right. and the film follows the character's journey to Hollywood in search of stardom, uh, and a cut of her, her wealthy uncle's estate. Uh, it was Mae West's final major film and it was Farrah Fawcett's first major film. Oh. Nature abhors a vacuum, doesn't it? No <laughs> Nature- more Mae West, but we're giving you Farrah Fawcett. Uh, by this time, she's firmly established, uh, Rocco Welch, as a, as a movie star. And uh, so she could, you know, carry films, and she could appear opposite some of the era's biggest stars. She she was with Burt Reynolds in the 72 cop comedy Fuzz, which oh. uh, is, is pretty funny. Is it? Um, Uh, She was in Bluebird with Richard Burton the same year. My favorite of hers, of course, comes in 73 um, with uh, James Coburn's Richard Benjamin, James Mason. Uh, She she stars in uh, Herbert Ross's The Last of Sheila, the wonderful mystery film that inspired Knives Out uh, uh, Glass Onion movie oh, right. and uh, which was written by Steven Sondheim and Anthony Perkins um, <laughs> but I think a case could be made Dean that her best film might also be a huge hit that came out in 73 which uh, earned Welch a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a comedy oh. and which spawned a 1974 sequel I'm talking about Oliver Reed Michael York Richard Chamberlain as the Three Musketeers in 1973 yeah, there you
0: go that is a classic, and I forgot that she was in that. Actually,
1: a couple of other uh, movies uh, that of hers that I enjoyed: uh, "Kansas City Bomber." Is it fair to say that's a fits the the mold of a guilty pleasure? The the drama set in the then very popular world of roller derby. <laughs> oh, right, that was a big yeah, deal in the seventies. Roller derby, yeah, remember? Also, uh, she did a western where she was the lead. And Robert Culp offered support as an aging gunfighter called Hanny Calder. Never heard of it. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, some other my fa- She she also appeared with Bill Cosby and Harvey Keitel in a movie with my favorite title of any movie ever made: Mother Jugs and Speed. Speed yep, yeah, that's funny. Um, They're so, ambulance drivers, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, by the eighties, her her film work had completely. I guess, dried up, it's it's safe to say. Though, she did make a lot of money off the MGM uh, adaptation of John Steinbeck's Cannery Row, which starred Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte, yeah. Be- Why did she make a lot of money off that? Because she sued MGM after being dumped from the lead role. <gasps> she was set to play an empathetic prostitute in the David S. Ward-helmed movie based on Cannery Row. And she was booted uh, by the studio over a contract violation because she insisted on having her hair and makeup done at her home so that she would arrive on location set ready every day. Right. MGM said no and said that's a violation and replaced Welch with Deborah Winger. Oh. Um, She tried to make peace by taking another role that MGM offered her to only be rebuffed by the studio again. Oh. So she hit back and sued MGM for $24 million. <laughs> and, and this lawsuit made uh, headlines all over the world. She alleged in her suit that the studio had built the movie and its financing around her, and then used the hair and makeup dispute as a way to get a younger actress uh, into the role. Mm. The matter dragged on through the courts and appeals but she was ultimately awarded $10 million verdict in 1987. Wow. And so not the 24 she sought, but can I point out 10 million far more than it made at the box office?
0: <laughs> That's a great point. Wow. Well, good for her. Cause I mean, that seemed petty of the studios. Uh, but you know, again, everybody panics going, we need somebody younger. We got to get rid of her. Raquel, Wells, so you tell her, how do we get rid of her? You know, that whole thing.
1: She did a lot of memorable work on television. I've been uh, really fond of of rewatching clips of a a TV special she did with uh, Cher. Uh, You know, she was a singer and she was a dancer. She twice appeared on Broadway. uh, First time in 81 when she filled in for Lauren Bacall in Woman of the Year. And in 97, she played the lead role in the Broadway uh, adaptation of Victor Victoria. Wow. Um, so many memorable television appearances. Who can forget right, Seinfeld when she mistakenly presents a Tony Award to Kramer, uh, which has unexpected repercussions and, uh, and, and, and ultimately leads to the classic cat fight between her and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, so indelible memories of her in that uh and she played herself in a a naked gun movie she really had of course quite a way with with comedy i i don't think that she ever probably got her due uh as a dramatic actress though she did do a, a television film i think it was the legend of walks far woman uh which um did win her many accolades oh and uh
0: Don't know if I've seen that
1: either. But uh, this was a time where almost someone's iconic stardom could overshadow their ability to get meaningful work. Right. She's so big of a sex symbol. Yeah.
0: Air quotes again that uh, uh, people only see her as that or she brings that baggage to the screen ready made. Right. That's also a problem. When you are uh, trading on looks and no one can see past it, that's always a sad, sad state of affairs.
1: Right when her movie career was winding down there at the beginning of the 80s, Hugh Hudson's movie career as a director was really uh, taking off in the early 80s. He was the English filmmaker who directed Chariots of Fire and Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan. He died February 10th at a London hospital after a brief illness at the age of 86. Uh, his feature debut was Chariots of Fire, your wow. first film, and you're directing the Best Picture winner, focusing on two British Olympic runners in the in the 1920s. It was nominated for seven awards, including Best Director. It won four, including Best Picture. Uh, and I think we talked about this a little last week, but... One of his major contributions was that uh, the 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 key he knew to the success with the film was casting unknown actors in the main roles, allowing them to inhabit their characters and freeing the audience from having any preconceptions about them. Right. He followed Chariots of Fire in 84 with Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, it was commercially and critically successful. I think people forget that. Um, other films that he made include Lost Angels, My Life So Far, and I Dreamed of Africa. Cool. Uh, this one I read about yesterday. This happened a week ago. Uh, Austin Majors, uh, American child actor, known for his role as Theo Sipowitz on the police drama NYPD Blue. Right, The Kid. The kid, yeah. Did you see he died on February 11th at the age of 27 at a homeless facility in Los Angeles? I did not see that. I've heard that it, it's believed it was a fentanyl overdose. Oh, that he, he was born in 95. He got a start in Hollywood at the age of two. Well. And then he had to wait two more years for his breakout role <laughs> uh, as Theo on the highly successful detective drama NYPD Blue. He appeared on the show for five years, earning a Young Artist Award for the role in 2002. Uh, he appeared in numerous hit shows of the day, including According to Jim, Desperate Housewives, ER, NCIS, and How I Met Your Mother. That could, might be pronounced as ER. I ER, sure. yeah, ER.
0: No, I know. It, it, it's hard to figure that one out.
1: He earned a degree from the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts in 2017, after which he worked as a photographer, videographer, and documentarian. Oh. Um, I don't know how that story ends at a homeless facility. That seems I mean, when I heard that, honestly, Dean, I first... I I thought to myself, oh, he he must have been making a, a documentary there. Like he was down there oh. filming something, right? And oh, something and something went wrong. And then I went, no, this seems like he was staying there. Oh. And uh, history is replete, right, with with stories of uh, child performers not having the happiest of of adulthoods.
0: Well, yeah, because you have to have uh, strong parental guidance. Uh, you also have to have an ability to understand the uh, social and uh, mechanisms of Hollywood and fame and stardom and all that. And that requires a lot of uh, deep thinking that maybe kids don't want to do. They just want to be on camera and, and make the cash and all that sort of thing. So,
1: But can, yeah. I, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Um, what is missing... From the producers, the directors, the co-stars that are working with and reaping the benefits of working with a four-year-old boy on a long-running hit TV show, that they don't feel some sort of responsibility to be a part of that young person's life as they grow
0: up. Well, I guess because everybody moves on. I mean, that's always the saddest thing when a series is canceled, is that family suddenly disappears overnight. Like, a woof. And everybody is busy, and they're working, and they're finding gigs and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, everybody says, hey, let's all keep in touch. This is, you know, the greatest cast ever. But that's rarely the case to that can continue. And for a child to experience that, that is incredibly devastating.
1: Um, Let's jump to the other end of the extreme from a former child star uh, to someone who worked entirely behind the scenes as a name virtually no one will know. Eugene Lee, Dean, was a set designer who worked with Saturday Night Live since its inception. Holy smokes. And who won Tony Awards for his set designs, including for Wicked. Oh. He died February 6th in Providence, Rhode Island, after a brief illness at the age of 83. He began working as a production designer for Saturday Night Live when it premiered in 75, remaining in the position until his death. Wow. The 48 years he spent with the sketch comedy show were more than anyone else on that production staff. He created sets for all the classic sketches, including Wayne's World, Church Lady, more Cowbell. His TV work also included doing the production design for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, Late Night with Seth Meyers. He won six Emmy Awards. On Broadway, in addition to Wicked, he won Tony Awards for his set design of Candide, Sweeney Todd. Oh. Other shows for which he did not win, but he designed them, Merrily We Roll Along, Susical, based on Dr. Seuss. <laughs> right. Glengarry Glen Ross. How much range is this showing? I know, right? He was also a co-founder and longtime resident set designer of Providence's extraordinary Trinity Repertory Company. Wow. Now you
0: think about the amount of pressure for the technical side. You think, oh, Saturday Night Live, oh my gosh, the actors have to come in Tuesday learn their lines for the sketches, rehearse Thursday, do a pre-taping Friday, then go live Saturday. What about having to, okay, what are the sketches we're doing? That guy won't know till Wednesday. He has to design them all and get them built and have them up in ready for Saturday night. I mean, I can't imagine how you last 48 years under that kind of pressure. <laughs>
1: Promotional consideration paid for by Empire State Gas. From farm to pump, we've got great gas. Belated spoiler alert.
0: Subspace. Dare to wonder.